Dungeons and Dragons is a fantasy role-playing game which uses demonology, witchcraft, voodoo, murder, rape, blasphemy, suicide, assassination, insanity, sex perversion, homosexuality, prostitution, satanic type rituals, gambling, barbarism, cannibalism, sadism, desecration, demon summoning, necromatics, divination, and their teachings. There have been a number of deaths nationwide where games like Dungeons and Dragons were either the decisive factor in adolescent suicide and murder or played a major factor in the violent behavior of such tragedies. Since role-playing is typically used for behavior modification, it has become apparent nationwide, with the increased homicide and suicide rates in adolescents, that there is a great need to investigate every aspect of a youngster's environment, including their method of entertainment, in reaching a responsible conclusion for their violent actions. Dungeons and Dragons, as described by Patricia Pulling from Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons and so-called expert witness in all matters related to Dungeons and Dragons related violence and crime. Hello everyone, welcome back to Point of Insanity Game Studios, Geekery in General Podcast, episode number 200. So, uh, joining me today, uh, first, a man who needs no introduction because he has appeared on the show many times, and that is Chad. How's it going today, Chad? Going great, Al, and let me take this moment to say congratulations. 200 is a big number um, for a podcast to be still being made on a regular basis, so... Congrats, man. Thank you. And also have a special guest uh, joining us today. Now, um, he actually appeared on a couple of uh, episodes of Chad's podcast for uh, whose podcast is it anyway, and that's Alexi. So how are you doing today, Alexi, and uh, welcome to the show. I'm doing very well, and I agree with Chad. 200 is a lot. All, All I hear when I... When I think of that number, is all the editing that you have been doing? <laughs> oh no, no kidding. Um, you know, the other day, because uh, episode one ninety nine has not yet been recorded. Um, but when Chad and I were finishing up uh, episode one uh, one ninety eight, I remember I took a look at like how many hours worth of material I have, and what was it, Chad? Like uh, around one hundred forty, one hundred fifty something. Yeah, I think you said like 146 hours worth of material. Yes, so like I said, uh, if you listen right now up to episode one, everything I have up to episode 198, you will have wasted, well, I hope you would not consider it wasted time, uh, you'll have spent uh, close to 150 hours there. And uh, I remember, Chad, you made an interesting comment. It's like, imagine if you spent all that time doing something else. (laughs) 
I, I, I made that comment because I do that myself sometimes. I um, actually have three podcasts, and I edit all three of them. So, um, yeah, I sometimes wonder what I could have done had I not been in my basement in a corner editing. But you're making so many people happy. And exactly, and that's what keeps you going. I mean, it's it's the fact that every week I look at the numbers uh, of, of podcasts that are downloaded, and it continues to raise, you know, it continues to get bigger and bigger, and what else can I ask for? Yeah, we, we do it for the fans, for the listeners, and... But yeah, it's uh, it does even just something simple and straightforward can sometimes take a bit of editing. Um, but I mean, some of the episodes, I'd have to say the one that I probably did the most work on. Um, I have this series I do called Bargain Bin Adventures, where you know I'll go to my local used game store and pick up some game that you can you know get for like a couple of bucks, and you know just pop it in, play it, first impression. You know, fun little series to do. And there was one I did called El Shaddai, Ascension of the Metatron. And later on, after I actually finished playing through the game, I did an episode about the mythological and religious interpretation of the video game. And so that record, I I probably put about 24 hours worth of work into an episode that was about an hour long. So uh, when you consider like, okay, having to play through the game, all the re- the writing, the research, the editing. So as I was saying to Chad the other day, I'm either very dedicated or very stupid, one of the two. Dedicated. My answer was yes. <laughs> so you think I'm both, a little of little of column A, a little of column B? I think to do the kind of things that we do and that Alexi has started doing, you have to be a little crazy. Yeah, but hey, it allowed me to put my religious studies degree to some use. So, as I said, I'm 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 sure that if my religious studies professors ever found out that I used all the inf- all the knowledge they taught me to analyze and interpret a video game, I bet they would just be so proud. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Bone Throwers Theater. Nah, it's not that kind of show. It's an RPG actual play podcast. My name is Jordan, and I'm joined by our fun-loving cast. This is Aaron. Jeff here. Johnny is my name. And I'm Jeremy. And what we do is dive in and play various tabletop RPG systems and games, such as Mini 6, Fiasco, Inspectors, Monster of the Week, Fate, and more. But no matter the rule set or setting, some pretty intense storytelling hits the fan. So whether you like epic fantasy, adventure, comedy, sci-fi, horror, or just horrifically bad puns, we've got something to feast your imagination on. Listen to our full episodes and more at BoneThrowersTheater.com. And may the bones fall ever in your favor. We're not here to talk about video games, so it might actually make a little bit uh, into today's topic, and we're going to be doing a little D&D roundtable, because... Dungeons and Dragons has come a long way since it was first released in, I think, what was it, 74? Um, you know, somewhere around there. So, you know, the mid-70s, been around for uh, quite a while, and it has become a cultural phenomenon. It went from being just a role-playing game to uh, we've seen it, you know, numerous books written about it. There have been several editions of the game. It's made its way into video games. 
and uh, they're, they're a cartoon series, and there have been a couple attempts, three attempts to make movies based on D&D. Now, how successful you want to see those movie attempts is up to you, but it has become a cultural phenomenon, and it had to start somewhere, though. So, as I'm now, Chad, I know that you did an episode where you talked about, um, it was on want, want to Hear some, Something Interesting, where uh, you and Scott discussed the history of D&D. Um, so, you know, go back and listen to that episode if you have a chance. But, it, you know, it just went from, you know, it had its roots in the wargaming uh, hobby and then became something I, I think bigger and better. So let's start by how did you get introduced to Dungeons and Dragons and how did you get started in this hobby? So now Chad and I have already talked about this uh, in a, a few times. So let's start with you, Alexi. How did you first get introduced to D&D and what got you started in it, into it? Well, it was a classic story where I went to knock on a friend's door to see what he wanted to do that evening. He said he was going to go play D&D. He invited me along. And my first experience of the game was being transformed into stone within about 20 minutes by a basilisk. (laughs) I spent most of the night sitting, listening, watching everybody else play while waiting to be changed back into flesh. Uh, and instantly fell in love with the game, but it was the, the the longer story is a lot more complicated than that. Okay. So, and, and for me, I mean, I, Chad, I wanna I wanna wait a little bit before we get into your story because it ties into one of the other topics I'd like to talk about uh, with the Satanic Panic. And now, um, how old were you when you first uh, were introduced to D anD D? Sorry, is that to me? Yes. I was 15. Okay. It was September 6th, 1979. Okay. So, yeah, I got into D&D a fairly young age, because I remember back when I was a kid, um, my parents, sometimes we'd go visit my uncle and uh, or family friends, and they had kids who were a few years older than me, and they were also into D&D, or they were into D&D, and... I remember I was probably about six or seven years old, and this would have been in the early 80s. And I remember sometimes they would have their friends over, and I would watch them play Dungeons & Dragons. And even though I didn't necessarily understand, you know, some of the stuff they were talking about, like saving throws and turning undead and... You know, it's things like that. I found it really interesting. So even though I wasn't playing, I still had a lot of fun watching them. And I remember they had all the little miniatures and such. Um, so then I start afterwards, I did pick up the basic D&D box set. Uh, the first one I had was the, it was the edition that had the Larry Elmore cover on it. And, you know, then it started you know, it didn't really do too much with it for a while, but then once I got to middle school, that's where I started to meet up with more people who were interested in D&D, and that's where I really it really took off for me. So, Chad, let's have the short version of how you got introduced to D&D. Um, well, I'll go with what I consider my true introduction to D&D, and that's when I was, um, I don't know, I was about 20 years old, I guess. It would have been... 95, 96, I moved to Eau Claire. Now, I had gamed before that, but not D&D. Um, and a group of friends were getting together, and they're like, hey, we know you're a role player. You ever play D&D? And I'm like, no. So we sat down, because I was kind of poisoned against D&D early on. 
um, in, a, in a couple different ways, which we can talk about later. Um, but uh, <laughs> so we sat down and we played and I played a half orc and I it was second edition. I my, my first set of stats, I rolled an 18 double zero strength um, and I was kind of hooked after that. Okay, so you started with second edition, and uh, Alexi, sounds like you probably started with first edition. I started with uh, the first game I played was the white box set. Okay, so the wow, the and real then about old school. six months after that, uh, after about six months, um, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons came on the market here in Canada, and everybody started playing that. Yeah, and for me, I mean, it started because I think I think they started. Uh, I mean, I know I started with basic, and then when I actually started really getting into it hardcore, we did kind of a mishmash of second edition and first edition, where we had the, it's like one of us had the second, the the first edition handbook, and then a couple of us had the second edition handbook, so, and that's one of the nice things I liked about those editions, is they were close enough stylistically that you can use them together, so... You know, we could, I think like I was playing a first edition Ranger before I played a second edition Ranger. And I know we had one friend that always liked playing uh, monks. So when we, now that we've talked a little bit about how we first got into it, one of the topics that people associate with Dungeons and Dragons, and I find it a fascinating topic and I, I always enjoy talking about, and that is the satanic panic. So Let's start with Alexi on this one again, because Chad and I, we've discussed the Satanic Panic. So in Canada, was the Satanic Panic much of a thing up there, or were you guys smart enough to not get involved in that? Oh, it it was a thing. Um, The time that I started playing, it didn't exist. I had got just in under the radar before the game went big in the media. And Monsters and, or Mazes and Monsters, the Tom Hanks film, came out in 82. And so we had all gotten quite established by the time that that film came out. That really kicked it off. There had been stories that had been going around about people who had been committing suicide just prior to that. There was a kid who had lost their character and gone home in Ontario and killed himself. That was about late 81. And we all, we, we heard about that and we knew how that was going to be spun, but we were all, you know, like a football player has never gone home and committed suicide because they lost a football game or somebody has never committed suicide because they didn't get on the cheerleading squad. When somebody commits suicide, it's a lot bigger than just what immediately happened, but people want to reach for that thing right up. And after Mazes and Monsters came out, then the media just went on a blitz. And that really reached its peak with the 1985 uh, interview uh, and and <laughs> really hack job that was on 60 Minutes where D&D is evil and they just, they just ballooned it into this huge thing. And some of the people that I played with, they went to schools that, ban the game and but really it never really affected us it, it we we saw it all as a joke as something that was going on in the media that the media was using to sell product and so on but we didn't really see any of that in 
in our own games. And I never met anybody who believed that that was a real issue or that they were really threatened by it. Yeah. And you make a good point. Cause that, and that's one of the, one of the uh, problems that people have with mass media is sometimes they, they will go for sensationalism over uh, the, you know, over facts. And I think you make a good point where you're saying there was the, you know, there was that child who had committed suicide because his character died. And then the media tried to say, oh, it's all because of D&D. And I, I think you hit the nail right on the head. And that is true that usually when do- someone does commit suicide, it's not just a spontaneous spur of the moment thing. There's usually a lot more behind it than just, you know, I didn't make the team or I failed a test in school. Yeah, it, it's, but it's easy to point to something and sensationalize it if you want to go after something that, well, as many adults at the time in the early 80s did not understand the game or why we were so involved with it. Yeah. And, and it's pretty much for parents, it came out of nowhere. Yeah. And since at this time, you know, D&D was still fairly young and we didn't have all the resources we have about it. Yeah, it was a lot easier to not only come across bad information about Dungeons and Dragons or, or role-playing games in general, it was a lot harder to find the good information. Um, where, of course, nowadays it's, you know, with the internet, you want to learn about something, just do a Google search or a Yahoo search, and you can find as much information as you want, good or bad. Well, you figure, you're a, you're a typical parent, it's 1980, and you're living in a world where there are no computers, that there's no interactive, like, like mass communication among just ordinary people, except for what happens at the PTA, right? Yeah. And suddenly there are all these kids that are just spontaneously asking you to let them have their kitchen for all of Saturday night. And they're completely rabid about the game from seven o'clock until you pretty much have to throw them out of your kitchen. And when they try to explain the game to you, it's just this babble of fighters and clerics and magic and spells and a whole lot of things that you have no cultural reference for of any kind. There's, there's just nothing in your 1980 parent lexicon that prepares you for all the, the, the terms that are connected to the game. So if you're a little uneasy about things that are new, naturally you're going to have a little bit of panic. But at least we weren't doing drugs. That is true. <laughs> so let's switch over to Chad here. Um, and again, I, I wanted to, to, I really wanted you to tell this story, even though I know you've told it to me before, because um, your first encounter with D&D was kind of really tied into that whole sm- mindset of the satanic panic. Well, yeah, I mean, I was in middle school, so it would have been the late 80s, probably, oh, 87 or so, maybe 88. And went to a friend's house and I said, uh, or they had asked us to come over, my brother and I, because we're really close in age and we kind of shared our couple friends. And so we went over there and they're like, uh, you guys want to play D&D? At that point in my life, I had no idea what D&D was. I had no idea what role playing was. I mean, I was a, I was a classic board game guy at that point that, you know, Monopoly and those kind of games. So we're like, 
Sure. So we went down in the basement and we made characters and we played a game called El Kadai, which is, as you guys know, the the Arabian setting. And uh, we had a blast at it. Um, I think I made a hobbit um, or a halfling. I can't remember exactly. We had a blast at it. We played for, you know, four or five hours, something like that. We went home and my mom's like, what'd you guys do? And we told her and she just flipped. She went off the deep end and it was like, I did not get to go to that friend's house for like four years. I did not. Um, I got scared so bad by my mother that I wanted nothing to do with role playing at that point. And, um, you know, you're going to hell, you know, you're going to um, start drinking the blood of babies. You're going, I mean, she had it all. I mean, she had every falsity about gaming you can think of. Um, and, <laughs> and it just scared me as a little, you know, Catholic kid. I was like, oh my God, what did I do to, you know, myself, my soul, my whatever. And, uh, so yeah, that was, that was kind of my first introduction to D and D. Um, and I guess even at the time, I didn't really even understand that it was Dungeons and Dragons, you know, it was just this game we played where we pretended to be this other guy who went and did, you know, adventures. It was like, at the time of playing it, I was like, oh, it's like Sherlock Holmes or something like that, where we're just trying to solve a mystery. But, you know, as a, as a kid in middle school who, uh, it just, she scared me so badly. And the funny part about this is now we, we transform forward 20, 25 years. And my mother will ask, hey, how did the campaign go? Because she realizes now that all that other stuff was just kind of silly. And you ended up not growing up to be a, a, a devil-worshipping mass murderer who, you know, uh, sacrifices cats and drinks the blood of babies. Correct. That that is a that is a true statement, um, and that's why I had such trepidation because I started role playing in 1994, again, uh, when I left home to go to school to go to college, and but the group that I was playing with they were not D and D guys. They didn't want to play D and D. They you know we played all kinds of other stuff. We played Call of Cthulhu, we played um, um, Atlantean, I think it was called. We played all these different games. But we never played D&D. And then I got engaged, moved to Eau Claire, found another group of people that game, but they were D&D guys. And it took me a long time to say, yeah, I'll sit down and try this D&D thing. Because still in the back of my head, <laughs> I'm going, oh, my God, you know, what is this? But um, turns out that everything that's connected with the Santanic Panic really was baloney. I mean, it really was. Yeah, and, and I think part of it, and it's just my one of my personal opinions, is I think part of it, and maybe now maybe this is why it, because it, uh, Alexi, it seems like, yeah, you had it up there, you were aware of the satanic panic, but it didn't really get very widespread. Or it wasn't really taken as, it wasn't blown out of proportion like it was down here. I mean, did you guys ever have any of the Jack, Tr Jack Chick comics up there? Or? Oh, yeah, we saw all of that. We saw all the, the little, uh, what do you call pamphlets that yep, the, pamphlets. that the people used to leave on the buses and so on and so forth and, uh, Blackleaf and, oh my God, my character died. We just laughed at it. We yeah. just thought that was funny. 
Yeah. Because that's, I mean, that's the thing is none of us felt threatened. Nobody I played with ever thought, oh, they're going to ban this game. And when cons started appearing at, in, in the mid eighties where, you know, you'd have thousands of people starting to show up to talk about the game or, or trade on the game or anything, you knew it was established. You knew okay. there was no rest. There was no threat. Yeah. And uh, one thing before we move in, cause that actually is a very good segue into the next topic I was planning about how D and D went from this kind of underground hobby to making its way into the mainstream. Uh, you know, when we are talking about the satanic panic of, I do have one friend, um, her mother, when she found out that her daughter was playing Dungeons and Dragons, she had for what the time was a very unusual reaction because some of her mom's friends were like, oh, you got to stop your daughter from playing D&D. It's going to, you know, lead her into this and that and the other. And, uh, you know, so what her mother did, and this was, I think this was really awesome. She's like, okay, well, she asked to sit in on one of their D&D sessions. And she's like, well, I found that it encouraged teamwork, creativity, and imagination. And it's like, okay, and people are getting worked up about this. Why? And I mean, I think uh, just my part of my personal opinion is that I think one of the reasons that it caught on when it did, at, at least down uh, in the States here, is because around this time, this is when we started to see you know, the right-wing conservative Christians really start to get, um, you know, get more prominence in American politics. And again, I'm not going to turn this into a discussion, you know, on religion or or politics or bashing anyone's beliefs, but I think that's when they saw this as their opportunity to really try to push their own agendas. Because, you know, of course, the Satanic Panic was more about, is about more than just role-playing games. You know, heavy metal music, horror movies, uh, pretty much that anything those people thought was evil or sinful was a target. But there was this other, there's this other podcast that I listened to from time to time called Monster Quest, or I'm sorry, Monster Talk. And they did an episode about the Satanic Panic. And they had a professor of religious studies on there uh, who was, you know, talking about you know, some of the, the stuff that caused it. And they, it's a really good episode. They talk about the history of D and D a little bit as well, but he was saying, you know, you look back at it, you know, people like us, we just saw this as a fun, neat little game that we could play with our friends. Whereas you had these people that were blowing out of proportion. Well, the people who were instigating the satanic panic, they were the ones living in a world of witch of wizards and witchcraft and, magic and demons and devils where we were just like okay i'm going to get together with my friends for a couple hours i'm going to pretend i'm a dwarven fighter and then i'm going to go back to school the next day so any last thoughts about the satanic panic before we start to move to the positive side where D did start to get a little more ingrained in popular culture oh no no please go on okay so and you I said, Alexi, you made a good point when you talked about the conventions. And I mean, it's hard to say, I think it's hard to, for me anyway, it's hard to really pinpoint exactly when D&D started to transition into a popular culture. Because um, I remember when I was a kid, I used to watch the D&D cartoon, which was, was that 84 or 85? Earlier than that, 81 or 82. Really? It was that early? Yeah, Gary Gigax had... Uh, after he had been ousted from 
uh, his control of TSR by the Bloom Brothers, he had gone out to California in order to uh, see about getting a movie made because the series was already in production. Okay, and, and I remember watching it. Now, of course, looking back, it's like, okay, uh, not some of that's not very true to the game, but it was still kind of a fun little cartoon to watch. Did you ever? Did you guys ever watch the D and D cartoon? Oh yeah, but but I hated it. So okay, <laughs> <laughs> I did not watch it till years later. I own a copy of the series now, but I did not watch it because it was outlawed in my house. Oh yeah, of course, <laughs> but. And not only did you have the cartoon, but I remember they actually would have TV commercials and they also had the toy line that they did as well. And I remember I used to have a few of those and, uh, you know, some of them you could just get down at the local grocery store in the, you know, the small little toy aisle that they had there. Um, but do you think like conventions is one of the things that really helped push D&D into the mainstream? Well, I, I don't know about the mainstream. The, the reason I dislike the, the the commercials and the D and uh, series and all of that was because at the time that I started playing the game and those things were were out, I was not a kid. You know, I was I was fifteen. I was already politically active. I was already doing things, you know, serious things, and I hated the fact that they were making D and D into a kids game. That, that everything was pushed towards eight-year-olds and 10-year-olds because obviously by the time those things came out, I was 16, 17, 18 years old. I, I mean, I was able to drink by the time that, by the time that the, the TV show was out. So I disliked intensely the fact that the people who were being catered to by the commercials and everything were not the people that I was playing with and seeing all the time and getting in contact with at universities and so on. I was, I was riding that wave. So when we went to conventions in 84, I knew the people who were making those conventions here in Calgary. I knew the people who were organizing them and getting them going. And I will be, I will be forthcoming with you. Okay. Those conventions were primarily uh, about 500 core people who would show up at one of the hotels downtown they would rent rooms that 30 people would stay in overnight between the conventions. And there was a lot of sex and drugs that happened in those rooms because we were 21, 22 years old. And so when you talk about mainstream, that certainly wasn't in the mainstream. Okay. Yeah. That, that incredible intensity of playing the game for, for 15 hours a day. And then, you know, being 21 none of that ever reached the mainstream yeah yeah and i guess uh you bring up a good point how you know you're a, sounds like you're a few years older than us there because when the D cartoon was out i mean if it was like 81 82 i would have been like six or seven years old back then so yeah it was i was definitely the demographic for that cartoon where uh, you know as you said you were in your uh you know you were in your late teens at that time so it was pretty much, they weren't shooting for you. They were shooting for people more like Chad and I. Yes. Chad, what do you think? So do you think that D&D is, I mean, where would you see D&D starting to become mainstream? I mean, I know we can, we're, we're probably, uh, 
have our own ideas about whether D&D is considered mainstream now or um, whether, well, maybe mainstream is not a, a, the appropriate term. I guess the way I, I would, maybe what I'm trying to say is D&D starting to become, it's coming more into the light where even if it's not necessarily mainstream, people are starting to learn more about it and they're realizing that, no, it's not this hidden agenda by, you know, the Church of Satan to recruit people and to, uh, you know, turn people into mass-murdering, devil-worshipping, blood-drinking animal sacrificers. Yeah, I was going to say, the, the the phrase mainstream, I don't think fits the the genre. It's, when did it start coming into popular culture? Um, and that's hard to say because it's, when did it start meaning anything to me, you know? Um, and like I said, I started gaming in the, the mid, the mid nineties and I got into D and D by 96, 97, but I would say I really wasn't comfortable telling people that's what I did, um, until the early two thousands. And at that point I had seen that there are other people and not just my group of friends that were doing this, you know, we're playing this game. Um, and for me, that happened when I started going to game stores, you know, um, game stores in the mid nineties, um, at least in the Wassa area were kind of sketch, you know, it wasn't a place you went to hang out cause there was some creepy guy behind the counter and there was a bunch of other creepy guys standing around, you know, um, at that time talking about magic, the gathering, which really confused me. Um, but it was at that point when I started seeing people that I went to school with or people that I happened to work with that did the same thing I did that it really started to feel like, all right, I can admit to doing this, you know, in public. And it's not that I was ashamed that I was a gamer. It's just that people looked at you differently because you were a gamer. And, and, you know, like Alexi said, I... I had a life outside of gaming and I still do. I, I mean, I love the game. I game as often as I can, but I have a life outside of that. If I sat around work and talked about gaming for the last 15 years, <laughs> you know, would I be where I'm at? You know, because people look at you differently. It's just, it's, I don't know if it's mainstream. I don't know if it'll ever be mainstream. I, it, it's definitely popular, but it's popular to be a nerd now. Um, and the three of us were nerds long before it was popular to be nerds. <laughs> I, I, you know, I guess I don't have a really strong opinion as to when it became popular. Um, but you know, and, and I don't think it'll ever be mainstream. There's too much, there's too much not knowing what's going on out there for it to be mainstream, I think. Okay. So, you know, and that reminds me, there was this bumper sticker I saw at my uh, local hobby store. Unfortunately, I didn't have a chance to pick it up, um, and they they haven't restocked it, but I think it describes all three of us perfectly. I played D&D before it was cool. <laughs> so, what about you, Alexi? You know, uh, when, cause when we bring up, you know, how D&D players were viewed by people who weren't D&D gamers, I mean... Did people tend to look at you differently or um, was did people just be like, oh, you have a hobby that just involves rolling dice and pretending you're an elf? No problems there. 
Oh, once upon a time. Uh, yeah, if you mentioned it to people who had been familiar with it or come across it, I, I have Chad's experience where it was definitely shaming, you know, that you play that childish game because they knew enough of it from from being from seeing it on television or or in the media or the the satanic panic or anything like yeah. that but it was far more likely to run into people who had never heard of it and even even in recent experience uh i've been at cons i've had tables at cons where i've sold books and you'd be surprised at how many people still don't know the game exists that they don't recognize the words. They don't know what it means. They've never heard of it. Yeah, I've run across that a lot too, and it, and it still shocks me every time, to be honest with you. Hmm. Yeah, because usually, um, at least in my neck of the woods and when I was growing up, you know, usually people did recognize the name Dungeons & Dragons, even if they didn't really know much about it. But, I mean, I remember when I was growing up, yeah, we had to deal with the shaming as well, where... You know, there are some pe- most of the kids at my school were like, okay, you play D&D, whatever, to each his own. But there were some people who, you know, they're like, oh, you nerd or you geek. Um, but there were some kids where, you know, there was a bit of bullying involved. And, and I, I've talked about these people before, but, um, I remember there was this group of kids that would sometimes come up to me at lunch or whatever and be like, Hey, Al, I beat Dungeons and Dragons. And, you know, which of course we all know you don't really beat Dungeons and Dragons. It's not like a video game. So, you know, we would, my friends, we would have fun with them. Like, okay, well, what what was your armor class? And they would be like, 722. When it's like, okay, it's obviously, it's obvious you don't know anything about D&D if you think you can get an armor class with 722. There's a certain superiority in that, isn't there? Yeah, it, exactly. Because it's like you, th- it's like you think you're insulting me, but in turn, I'm just saying, okay, you don't know what the heck you're talking about, so get out of my face. <laughs> well, you could make that isolation work for you as well. If if I took my books in my my uh my original books back you know at the time the dungeon dungeon master's guide or the player's handbook and i and i went to a coffee shop or i went to the university and i just put them someplace on on the table in front of me where they were really obvious they would they would attract D players like flies mm-hmm. like that's all you really had to do and as soon as somebody would sit down there would be an instant camaraderie because we all experienced that same shame Exactly. And, and so it's like, yeah, we D and D players, we, you know, even if we, you know, if you've never met, they see that you've got a D and D book or you're wearing a D and D t-shirt, you've instantly got something to bond with. And it's like kindred spirits, buddy. <laughs> exactly. Yep. So, I, I mean, I think that for the most part, once we got, once the satanic panics finally started to die out and people realized that D and D wasn't going to make you a Satan worshiper and such, I, I think it, started to move to the point where we were no longer seen as some sort, something evil, but okay, we were nerds. We weren't considered cool, but I think as we started to move towards the nineties, we didn't get harassed as much. At least that was my experience. Um, I mean, yeah, you had those kids that would 
thought they were being cool back in school, but I mean, by and large, most people I think by that time really weren't taking the same negative approach to it that they people did earlier on. I agree. So what do you think uh, is different about being a D&D player now as opposed to when we were a kid? I mean, I usually, just from my experience, when I tell people I'm into Dungeons & Dragons, I don't get the shame stuff as much anymore. You know, no one accuses me of, you know, being a, a devil-worshipping baby sacrificer or anything like that. Um, most people are just kind of like, oh, okay. Um what about your experiences? I mean, being a D&D player now, do you tend to have people react more with curiosity or, I mean, with the exception of other people who are gamers, do people just kind of, you know, not really take much of a, an approach towards it one way or the other? Now and then I get somebody who has some curiosity and I've learned how to explain the game to them. Uh, most people, I think more people now have played it even if they're not playing it, they played it once upon a time or they knew somebody who played it or they've got a, a brother or a son or somebody that plays it. So I don't get very much of that negativity at all. It's it's like saying I, I'm, I go kayaking on the weekends and everybody's fine with it. And if they have an interest in kayaking, then they'll say something. But it's no it's no more or less than that. Okay. Yeah, and I would have to, I would tend to agree with that. Now it's, in, in sometimes when you, when you mention that you're a gamer, you know, um, what I find a lot is I'll say, you know, we're playing whatever this weekend, whatever game we happen to be playing, whether it's Dungeons and Dragons or Call of Cthulhu. And a lot of times it, right away, they think you're a video game player. And you're like, no, 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 I play it old school with pencils and dice. And I don't really get negativity out of that. I get people that are like, why would you want to do that instead of like playing it on a video screen? And I'm like, because that's the way I do it, you know. But I don't really see negativity anymore. I, I have to agree with that. Um, most of the time it's either curiosity, indifference, or you strike up a conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a good point. I mean, we, we talk about uh, video games and how – you know, of course, there's been tons of, of D&D video games out there. Um, but do you think, like, the popularity of MMOs like World of Warcraft and EverQuest, do you think those helped bring people into the D&D fold? Or uh, do you think that it really didn't have much influence on bringing people into the role-playing hobby? Well, let me ask you one question on that, Al. How long did 4th Ed last? Oh, like six years? Fourth Ed was an MMO in a book. It, it, I don't think it did anything for the hobby. I think it did a lot of bad things for D&D. And, I mean, that's just my opinion, but I don't think... there. Though there is crossover, I think the interest has to be there. I don't think one brings on the other, in my opinion. Okay. Alexi. Well, I'm just I'm just trying to think that through. Okay. Cuz um I mean, I know when I back in 2005, uh the at, this was after Gen Con had left Milwaukee, they tried to bring in something to replace it, and I think it only lasted like a year or two 
but they introduced this convention called Game Fest. And I remember going there, and I, uh, Gary Gygax was doing a seminar where he, you know, people question and answer, and, uh, you know, of course, people did ask him questions about a lot of the stuff you would think that he would ask about, like, okay, what did you think of the Satanic Panic? What do you think of what D&D has become? And someone did ask, what do you think that MMOs and Magic the Gathering, what do you think that's done to role-playing games? And he actually didn't really have a, a very negative view of it. He thought that it was good because, okay, well, sitting behind a computer screen pretending to be an elf might not be my thing. It might cause that person who plays World of Warcraft or, or EverQuest to maybe say, okay, well, there's this game, Dungeons & Dragons, that's kind of the same premise. So instead of sitting behind a computer screen and pretending to be an elf, I can sit around a table with a bunch of people and pretend to be an elf. I think I'll go try it out. So he didn't really think it had the negative impact that some players thought that uh, that those things would have on D&D. I think I'm a little inclined to... I, I'm a bit inclined to agree with him. Um because I've known more people who were into D&D before they got into MMOs, but I've known a couple of people who played, you know, the, the video role-playing games, and then that led them to investigating D&D and taking it up as a hobby. I see both negative and positive aspects to it, and I'm just trying to parse how I want to tackle those two issues. Positively, it's a, it, MMOs are a gateway to D&D. I've had people who have come from MMOs to play in my world, and it's a step up from an MMO because you have more control over what your character does. Uh, there's more variety in what can happen to you. You're not limited to what a programmer can come up with ahead of the game. The DM can come up with something immediately that's new and inspiring and is, is, a, is a terrific game changer over what an MMO can provide. Oh, exactly. And I agree with you 100% on that. And uh, I'm glad you brought it up because that's a point I wanted but to talk about. But at the same time, Go. but at the same time, a lot of DMs are not able to do better than an MMO. A lot of DMs just don't have the chops to do better. And if you're playing with a lot of DMs in a group, such as an Adventurers League, where there aren't very many DMs who can work as a mentor for others, the MMO shoots the game in the head because the players come to the game with the MMO expectations. And if the DM isn't there to lead them into a higher plane, then the D&D game becomes an MMO. And then it's just silly and frivolous and definitely doesn't lead anybody towards a better game experience. And new people who come in expecting something better than an MMO get disappointed and driven away from the game. Okay. And, and, you know, both very good points. Um, and I can definitely agree with your first point that one of the nice things about D&D, you know, as you were mentioning, uh, well, with a video game, you're limited by what has been programmed into the game. Um, you know, if the game designers didn't think to give you the ability to do a somersault and roll underneath a giant's leg and then try to hit them from behind, you can't do that. Whereas in Dungeons and Dragons or any role-playing game, you can tell the game master, I'm going to try to tumble underneath the giant's legs and then 
stab him in the back and the hammy strings. Um, you know, so there's definitely a lot more of that creativity. But have you had that experience where you've met people who, or at least this is what it sounds like, that you've met or heard of people who tried D&D and they were expecting it to be like World of Warcraft where they had all these really cool powers? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, en masse. Because if if I if I go to the Adventurers League game that is here in the city every every week, I can see a lot of people who are encouraged to think of D and D as an MMO because it's easier to run. You don't have to reach out as a DM to expand your 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 concept of what the game can provide. I mean, when I say to you the game has so much more potential. You agree with that, but you'd be very, very disappointed to find out how many DMs don't think it should have more potential because it's harder to run with more potential. See, and that's one of the things I've always liked about D&D is the potential is unlimited, at least in my opinion. Um, I mean, you can adapt D&D to just about any, uh, you know, just about any genre that you want. And I know they've, there have been, TSR has made attempts to do that, um, with, uh, cause I don't know if, uh, you were ever into Ravenloft and if you ever got into the, the Mask of the Red Death, uh, setting that they created for it. Uh, I, not Ravenloft, but I can think of, I can think of comparisons. Yeah. And cause like with Mask of the Red Death, it was, uh, basically moving D&D into like a Victorian age. So you still had some of the Ravenloft stuff with like the horror checks and the chances to go insane, but again, it was taking place in Victorian times. But do you agree or disagree that there are DMs who don't have the capacity to do that? I think there, I would agree that there are ones that, that don't. Um, and I think it really comes down to experience, at least in my opinion, because I mean, I think the, if you're starting out as a dungeon master, you're probably more inclined to try to run things by the book. Um, and, cause it does take a little bit of effort to try to adapt it into other settings. Like, let's say you wanted to do a science fiction D&D campaign. It's going to take a little more effort to think of things like, okay, how are, are each of these D&D classes, how are they going to translate into a science fiction setting? But then you have to think, okay, in a science fiction setting, they might have laser guns and, you know, laser rifles. So how do you scale the damage for those weapons so that they're, they're going to be dangerous, but they're not going to be overpowered? So, I mean, I know they tried to do that a little bit with fifth edition. Um, a friend of mine showed me the fifth edition player's hand or DM's guide. And in the back, they do have stats for things like, you know, laser guns and, um, I think even modern weapons as well. And well, they, they did try to introduce energy weapons in some of the older stuff. Um, what was it? Expedition of Barrier Peaks? Where you were doing the crashed UFO? I'll I think you're right for that. Yeah, it was either that, it was either that or White Plume Mountain. I think it was Expedition to the Barrier Peaks that you were in the, uh, you, that where you were in the UFO. And I think Temple I know of. It wasn't- I know it wasn't White Plume Mountain, because that one I've played. Okay. And then Temple of the Frog is another one where, uh, for basic, where uh, they had powered armor and they had uh, these cultists that had energy weapons in there. 
But yeah, I don't think it's something that all DMs can do, whether it's because they don't want to take the time to try to translate, say, okay, how much damage would a machine gun do in D&D? Or maybe they just don't have the inclination to bring their game into that type of setting. I'd like to propose a third option there. Okay. I think they very much would like to do it. I think they very much want to do it. And I think a lot of them feel a deep passion for wanting to do it. But they don't know how to do it. They look at the books. They look at the process. But they can't, they can't take the very bare bones of what's in the books and translate that into the moment-to-moment activity that goes on at the table. And there's nobody that's showing them how. When we started playing the game, we mentored each other. And we had some basic premises that we were going by that weren't coming out of any kind of social media. I mean, the Dragon Magazine was sort of there, but it certainly wasn't the the, the process that we were coming from. We were ma- basically making it up as we went along. And so we were open to the idea that this works, this doesn't work, don't do this, do this. So we were mentoring each other. But that mentorship has been completely decimated by the multiple the, the, by the multiple editions, the multiple voices coming from different companies who are promoting the game, the endless pile of material in splat books that has been dumped on an average DM that they're they get to choose from and absolutely nothing in the sense of here's how to actually sit at a table and deal with people day to day. So they might want to do everything that you're saying, but they're overwhelmed and they're lost and they don't know what to do. And for the most part, they're at the mercy of their players. Okay. And yeah, good, definitely good point because I mean, I know I've had groups where the players were, you know, less than cooperative, <laughs> but yeah, and they, or they, they've got all these weird things that they want to do. Um, and I, and I know that's another topic altogether, the whole splat books and how, uh, whether you think they, well, that's a good question to go into. Uh, do you think that all this material, do you think it hurts D and D or do you think it, it's helped D and D? Chad, take that one. <laughs> um, Boy, that's a loaded question, Al. Um, being a guy who spent most of his playing time in 3.5, where splat books were everywhere, (laughs) they were quite extensive, I got to answer this question in two ways. As a player. As a player, I think splat books are amazing. I think there are a lot of things that you can fine tune your characters with. I think it's a lot of things where you can make a character that isn't maybe necessarily a core character. And it gives you a lot of avenues to follow. Now as a DM, I have a love hate relationship with splat books because splat books make it just that much harder for you to know all the rules. Uh, when I first started DMing, I was very much a by the book guy, which I, I no longer am, but I was at a time and to know all the rules, obviously you can't do that, especially when you start adding in splat books. I mean, you just take the basic game. You can't know all the rules. 
So there was a lot of time lost in games at times finding out the rule because I would make a ruling and the person playing the character would go, no, no, that's not what it says in the book. So then you got to stop. I've got to read the book to make sure that I understand what's going on. And then I have to make a second ruling, um, either agreeing with the character or showing or giving a reason why I don't agree with the way that they interpreted the rule. And it becomes a real hassle. So splat books are, they can be a good thing and they can be a horrible thing. It just depends on which side of the screen I'm on. Okay. If that makes any sense. No, it it does. Um, It makes perfect sense because, I mean, I'm sure if anyone out there who, you know, does like the splat books, you probably like looked through the, uh, well, I mean, just using uh, myself as an example, a couple months ago I picked up uh, fifth edition um, Xanathar's Guide to Everything. And, you know, just looking through some of this stuff, it's like, hey, this is an interesting, you know, class. I want to try it. But yeah, I can definitely understand where you're, where you're going as a game master, where it almost gives you too many options. And as you said, now it's like someone's like, oh, I'm, I use this feat and I now get to add plus 20 to my damage. And then it's like, okay, now you got to like look up, okay, which book and, and whatnot. Well, think of it this way. It's, it's kind of like the, the crazy idea we came up with the other night in episode 198. You know, about the zombie ninja uh, Norse trickster god powered thing. You know, I'm sure if you look hard enough, you can make that character. But come on, would you want to? An immortal Highlander ninja zombie with the powers of the Norse trickster god Loki. Right. I, I mean, it's it can be done. Anything can be done in these games. But as a DM, would you want to see that? So just because anything can be done doesn't mean everything should be done. I would agree. So, Alexi, what do you think about a, a, a immortal Highlander ninja zombie with the powers of the Norse trickster god Loki? I wouldn't let it. Hit, I wouldn't let it in my game. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's just that's just a flat no. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I agree with you, Alexi. I'll tell I you who loves splat books. I'll tell you who loves splat books. The company loves splat books. Oh yeah. That the company is using a psychological principle of recognizing that individuals want uniqueness. They want individualism. And they want to be able to have something that is so unique and so different, such as what you mentioned, that it makes them feel special. And that's what the company has been selling for the last, for the last 30 years. Is the, is the idea that if you buy this book, you will feel special. You, you, the only player who will ever be this thing that we have included in this book. Cause no other player will be. And if we make builds, then you can make even more specialized me characters as well. And we've encouraged a generation, two generations of players to look at the game from the total perspective of me, 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 uh, DMs are facing that. They're facing that uh, isolationist, personal desire for players to uh, make themselves into this. I mean, that's something that everybody's experiencing in every part of life. 
is that the the business model of selling any product is to make us all feel special and unique. And D&D is suffering from that from that same scourge because that's what the splat book is designed to do. It's designed to make everybody feel unique. And there's just there's just in a game there's a certain amount of there's a certain point you reach where that's no longer practical. It's just too much. Yeah, and and I can definitely see what you're saying. Um, though I think one of the reasons they almost have they have to kind of try to introduce new stuff, though, because you think about it with a rule book, you sell it to a player. Well, then they can use that book over and over again, and um, you know, so you got to think of ways to continually bring revenue into the company. But I do agree, it can be overdone. But that's how they've got you. Yeah. Okay, they've got you because you agree with. You agree with that principle. They know that they're playing into your psychological base. And you can't help but like it. That's how they own you. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this, Alexi. Would you ever allow the use of a splat book in one of your campaigns? Well, I've stolen from enough of them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, know, I know how much I can handle as a DM, right? I mean, that's the point, is that you don't let the splat book dis- decide for you what you have to handle to or live up to in your game. You look at the splat book and you go, all right, I can use this, I can use this, I can use this, and the rest of this can go to hell. And if the players don't like it, they can go find another game because they don't have very many choices anyway. But you don't let the splat book dictate what you can handle in your game. Okay, fair enough. I was just, because the way you had talked about it, I, I just didn't know if you had ever allowed one in your game. <laughs> Not 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 unbridled. You know, and there is one type of splat book that I do miss that I don't think they've done it in third edition on, but do you guys remember the green the historical reference books from second edition? I remember them. Yeah, because I've gotten I think I have most of them. I might be missing one of them, but you know, they had like the Vikings, they had Charlemagne's Paladins, they had uh a mighty fortress, which was the Renaissance. Um, there was one for the Celts, uh, the classical Greece. And I liked those because they're fun to read. I mean, there are some interesting ideas in there, but one of the big influences in there is like, okay, let's say you're going to try to, okay, you are going to run a campaign in ancient Greece. Okay. These care, you know, these character classes, would be appropriate, these would be inappropriate, these here, this would probably need some modification. So I could see how it would be uh, challenging because one of the things they talk about is, okay, if obviously if you're going to be doing a strictly historical campaign, you know, you don't want, you know, no mages. But if you are going to allow some ma- wizards, there's usually a, they have a very restricted list. Like, usually they're going to focus on spells that you know, no fireballs. So something like sleep or charm person or an illusion spell might be appropriate with that mythology, but I mean, how many stories are there from Greek legend about, you know, mortal wizards running around casting fireballs and lightning bolts? But you can steal from whatever you want. That is true. So It's I'm, your game. You don't have to obey any principle that doesn't fit into your concept. Yeah, and And some of them do have some interesting concepts they've introduced, like, 
in the Mighty Fortress one where they were talking about wiz- you know, magic and how you could possibly run it. I mean, obviously there's a much more limited thing, but they recommend that as a, you know, just as an idea that you, uh, the casting time bumps everything up one. So something that you might cast in a couple segments is going to cast, take a couple rounds. Something that might take a round to cast is going to take a turn. And it's supposed to em- emphasize that, yes, while magic can be, you know, powerful and helpful, well, it's going to take time and it's not something that you can just pull out of thin air. That's how I limit my mages. Yeah. So do you yeah. guys, just off the topic, but do you guys, uh, do you guys use spell components at all? In your, uh, or did you never really get into that? Depends on the spell. Um, usually I allow a spell component pouch to deal with any spells up to about third or fourth level. And then after that, um, you need to start worrying about spell components. Yeah, because I've always been more like, I never really used it, but sometimes if there's an exceptionally powerful spell that requires a uh, a very specific ingredient, you know, like something very rare, then I'll have them, you know, require them to use that component. But yeah, spell components is like encumbrance. It's one of those rules that I never really got too, too much into. I, I, I don't use them. Okay. Uh, I I have I have a, a use for them. I use them in magic creation if you're making something from scratch, but I don't use them in in regular casting of spells. Okay. So one of the topics that comes up with D and D sometimes is the addition wars, where and of course people are going to have their own definition of what in, constitutes addition warring. You know what's an addition warrior. Um, I know it's something that, I mean, I have a good friend, uh, Dan, who does his own podcast, Radio Free Borderlands, where he talks just about D&D, and I know he's always tried to be anti-addition warrior. Have you guys ever noticed a lot with uh, addition warriors in in your experience interacting with gamers, or do most of the people that you game with are pretty much, well... Every edition has its strengths and weaknesses. Maybe there's some I prefer, but I'm not going to hate on you just because you like a specific edition. I, I'm certainly glad to see that edition wars are starting to go into the background. Mm-hmm. You're not seeing them nearly as much uh, in conversations online as we were, say, five years ago. That I hate to say it, but 5.0 seems to have been a compromise that has has relaxed a lot of people on the subject. As far as my personal game is concerned, I have very rarely had anybody who came into my game who felt it was a problem because of what edition they were used to playing. I don't play any edition. I play my edition. Okay. It's loosely based on AD&D, but there have been so many changes over the years that you can see the bare bones of it, but there's, there's, it's been massively changed. Okay. And what about you, Chad? You know, I never really ran into that. Um, now I'm not a man. I'm not a fan of fourth edition, so I don't play fourth edition. Um, and I'm not a fan after I played it. That that's the one thing is I hate, I, I, I shouldn't say I hate. I dislike the people who say, Oh, fourth edition was garbage. Well, did you ever play it? No. I just read online. Well, then you can't say it's garbage because you have no idea if it's garbage. Um, And I don't think 
fourth ed was a bad game in and of itself. It just, to me, did not give me Dungeons and Dragons. It gave me World of Warcraft. But I, I've never really seen people be like, um, hey, can I play in your game? Yeah, we're playing whatever edition. Oh, never mind. I've never gotten that. You know, I, I've never gotten, oh, I can't believe you play that edition. Um, I know it's out there. I know it was big online, and I just avoided those type of conversations because I think they're pointless. Um, but I've never really seen it, no. Yeah, because there have been a couple people I've met when I – because I used to do a, run campaigns at my local hobby store. And there were a couple of people that were kind of like that because I've usually run a lot of second edition there. And, you know, there was this one guy he'd – you know, he wasn't like, oh, you like second edition, you're the scum of the earth, but he was more like, well, I don't know why you stick with second edition because there's, you know, third is far superior, which, you know, hey, if third edition floats your boat, then good on you. But yeah, I haven't encountered as many people in person um, who are, who I would consider edition warriors. Uh, most of my experience with those people has been online where, you know, they're like, well, if you, you know, you you like that version of D&D, you're not a real D&D fan. You know, you're not a real D&D fan unless you like this edition. But yeah, I think it has started to um, die down a bit. And uh, Alexi, you had mentioned 5th edition. So and I think that's one of the reasons, do you think that's one of the reasons the edition wars have died down I mean, do you think that we've matured as gamers where we're finally starting to see past that? Or do you think that 5th edition did enough to, like, uh, it did enough to please the older fans, but it also did enough to please the, the newer fans that maybe started with 3 or 4? Oh, those edition wars arguments were awful. I completely agree with Chad. They were just, I mean, yeah, you wanted to stay out of them because they were just awful. But I don't think that they were unhealthy. I think that they needed to be there. I think that the internet through from you know 2000 forward, you had had three editions already. There hadn't been a public discourse on the three editions because, of course, there was no internet. And I think that there needed to be that kind of, of mass discourse from people who wanted to talk about it and and hash out the splintering of the of the game that the company had brought in. The fourth edition fell on its face because basically the internet killed it. There's there's no doubt about it. Whatever people stood up for fourth edition, they got washed in a rain of people who not not only had read it but had played it. And I have to tell you, Chad, uh, I read it. I thought it was stupid. And then I played it and realized that it was worse than I had imagined. <laughs> it really was. It really was. And But I didn't go on a rampage about it. I dropped my, you know, I dropped my hundred books, bucks on the Christmas pack when it came out and I read through it. I still have it. Um, yeah. You know, my wife enjoyed fourth edition. She was not, she's not really a gamer, but she enjoyed fourth edition because of the, the ease and the simplicity of it. And that's part of the reason I didn't like it. And because it, to me, it felt like world of Warcraft, like I said. And so I don't go out on the internet and I'm like, everybody that plays this game should go to hell because this is the stupidest game they've ever put out. And that's not my place. Everybody should read it and play it for themselves and figure out whether or not they like it. 
I think as a community, though, we had to have that conversation. I think we're getting on the other side of it. To answer your question, Al, I think we're getting on the other side of it because we've had that conversation. Mm-hmm. I think that that's the I think that's the key. And the fifth edition came in at just the right time as a compromise at the end of everybody's desire to continue that edition war. I mean, yeah, of course, there are still people who are out there, but I think most people are tired of the conversation and feel that they have come to a point. And I think that Chad's Chad's argument is the is the point that everybody's come to. Whatever you like, whatever you want to do. I've played fourth edition when it um, a couple of times. I mean, I, I don't take as much of a negative. I mean, it's not it's not my favorite version. It's not horrible. At least, I mean, it it, it had some design choices that. I wasn't really fond of, like, with the at-will powers I thought were a little much. I did like the concept of the encounter powers and the daily powers because, well, let's say you've got this nifty encounter power that does double damage, just for the sake of argument. Well, and you're fighting an ogre. You might think, well, it's only halfway, well, let's see, do I want, or let's, an encounter power wouldn't be a good example. A daily power. So you've got some daily power that does some really awesome damage. And, you know, it's still early in the game day and you're fighting an ogre. Well, you might have to ask yourself, do I want to use this really awesome daily power on this ogre? Or do I want to wait because maybe later in the day we're going to encounter something far tougher? So I did like the concept of the daily powers. The encounter powers were okay. But yeah, overall, it's not, I said not horrible, but it's not my first choice for additions. So, but yeah, I think it's good that people have had the conversation, though, and that I think as as a community, I think gamers have started to finally move past that, where we're not going to start criticizing each other just because they like a different version of D&D than we do. So, where do you think D&D is going to go in the future? Um, cause we've seen it go through a lot of changes. Cause I mean, let's look at a first, you know, like a basic fighter or now I've never played the white box set. So I'm not sure how different that is from basic, but I mean, you just take a look at a class like the fighter and how it's changed from, you know, basic to first to second, third, fourth and fifth. So definitely there's been a lot of changes there, but as a whole, where do you hope to see D and D go in the future? Uh, personally, I think it just, I just hope it keeps going. I am a big fan of fifth edition, so I'd like to see fifth edition stick around for a while. Um, I like the fact that there's not a ton of splat books and when they do put out additional material, um, it's more of a revision without creating a whole new set of rules than it is a splat book. Um, I'm not so sure what I think of the way that they're doing adventures because you've got to buy the hardcover book and that seems to be the only way you can buy it. And all of them come in, you know, three hard books at $35 a piece. So if you really want to run a full campaign, you're looking at, you know, $105. Um, And if you get halfway through the first book and you're like, oh, this is horrible, you're out a lot of money. Uh, but other than that, I really like the way Fifth Ed is going. I hope they keep going in the same direction they're going with it. And I hope it lasts for a while. I mean, third edition had a pretty decent shelf life. Second edition had a great shelf life. 
Um, fourth edition didn't have a shelf life, and we'll see where fifth goes. So oh, yeah, and you I've think got- you think about it. Basic had a huge shelf life. I mean, it went from what like the seventies up until like the mid like mid or late nineties. Before now, they- what are you what are you considering basic? Well, I'm talking about like back in the days when you know elf, dwarf, and halfling were classes. You know, so I'm talking I, I, about the, you know, the the red box that came before the Elmore. It's the, I forgot which version it was. It was the one, it's the famous one where there's the dragon and then there's like a guy with a spear and a woman about to cast a spell. You mean BX? Yes. Yeah, the, or BCMI as some people like to call them. I don't know if it went that long because I know Second Ed was out by then and I, I don't know how long they supported Basic um, yeah. with new material. I know it went into the 90s. I'm just going to reach over and grab my rules cyclopedia, um, which I, yeah, it's expensive, but I def, if you ever have a chance, I mean, for anyone out there, if you comb your used bookstore, if you ever find a copy of the basic D&D rules cyclopedia, definitely well worth it if you can find it at a decent price because, um, you know, it contains everything from the basic to the uh, master's rules. Let's see, that. Well, that had a copyright of 91. Um, yeah, I thought they continued to support BASIC up until like the, like I said, like at least the mid early to mid-90s. So it had a pretty good shelf I'm, life, I'm too. I'm curious, I'm curious, and I never understand this. Why are you identifying the value of the game by what the company supports? Well, who, who cares how long the game was produced or published? Why does that matter? Well, I guess because the I guess the way I see it, it, it shows that it has an enduring quality that people were still willing to play, uh, you know, the basic version of the game even into the days of second edition. But but you can find that by people who are playing about it and writing about it and doing blogs on it and publishing new materials for it right now online for themselves. Why do you go to the company? Well, I guess just because that's what I'm more used to. Um, I mean, I know that, yeah, there are people who'd make their own products out there. Now, of course, TSR had a time where they were going after people who were, but that's, that's one thing I'm glad that Wizards did. They didn't, they didn't go all, uh, copyright crazy like TSR did. But I guess the reason I would go to the company there is because that's what I'm used to going into. And again, we got to look back at the time, you know, the early nineties, the internet wasn't as common as it was right now. So, you know, back then it would have been a lot harder to jump online and try to look for people doing new D&D content. So I'm sorry to break your balls about this. Basically, it's this. It's it's in answer to your question. What do I want D&D to be? What do I want the game to be? I want the game to stop being official. Okay. I, I want to get rid of this official in quotes that's around the game. I want us as players to stop identifying things that we're doing for ourselves in terms of what the company's doing. We don't need the company. We don't need them. We don't need to tell them what books are still popular or what books are still selling. You can get the red box set easily, you can strip it offline. I promise you, if you go and you look for any number of sites that will just search for documents, you'll find it. Okay. It's not hard. Yeah. You don't have to buy it at your bookstore. You can, you can get it offline and nobody will 
nobody cares anymore because it's in the public domain as far as the company is concerned. The company doesn't care whether or not you steal the red box set offline because they're not supporting it and they don't care. So we need to get out of this headspace that the company makes up our hobby. And I hate to use that word, but I know a lot of people think of it that way. But we got to get out of that headset. Because okay. that that is what makes us a prisoner of what the company thinks we can do with this game. Yeah, and, and I think, I mean, I agree with what you're saying there where, you know, that we shouldn't be afraid to make up our own stuff. Because, I mean, I, I forgot which one of the episodes with Chad that, but you were mentioning like, oh, just as a hypothetical example, um, you know, rules for selling potatoes or potato trade, which maybe, yeah, that's something they just never thought of doing. Um, but what do you think when you talk about not leaving everything to the company as in whoever's owning, uh, D and D, what did you, what did you think of the, uh, open gaming license that they introduced with third edition where now anyone could publish materials and not have to worry about, uh, wizards coming after them and claiming copyright. Do you no, think wizards, the wizards was welcome to come after me. I don't really <laughs> care. I'm, I'm. I was a pirate long before there were pirates. Okay. I'm an analog pirate because we took things out of books long before there was an internet. So, I mean, the wizards of the coast could have whatever fantasies it wanted to have about controlling the game. I never cared. Okay. The thing is that you, you habitually go to look up in your book to see what the company, how long the company supported the game in order to see whether or not the game had a shelf life. Well, the shelf life's immaterial. Chess has a shelf life that's been going on for decades, but we don't call the king of Persia to find out how the game is played. Okay, that, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we don't define long-lasting, determined games on the basis of the of the guy who sells the game. The guy who sells the game is not our game. Just because he made it, and this game less than any other, because this game entirely depends on the DM to make it their own game. Yeah, than, less than any other game, this is our game. So it sounds like you think that people... So you would say that like one of the bigger um, criticisms, and I, I know you were talking about this before, where one of your criticisms that you have of some DMs is that they're too concerned about what's in the book, and they're not they're afraid to take that step to write their own stuff? Well, it's not that they're afraid. They're not being told how. Okay. They're, they're, they're being told by the company that they shouldn't, and they're believing it. They're being brainwashed. They're being, there's no other force. Where's, where is the organization surrounding D&D that is not company controlled? How come we don't have one? There are video game organizations for every game that you can go to that has nothing to do with the designer. Why don't we have this in D&D? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I know there's, you know, of course, the fan base is out there and the different, you know, there's probably different discussion groups out there on the on the Internet. But, yeah, I haven't really thought of that as to why there isn't anything like that for, for D&D. Because the thumb is on the players. Okay. Because the thumb is on the fact that the DMs on the whole are are wallowing. 
they're struggling. I, I, don't, I don't know how many times I'm talking to a DM who says, I wish I could stop DMing and go back to playing again because they're not enjoying DMing. They, they don't know how to do it. They feel pressed upon. They're not having a good time. And they remember when they used to be a player and everything was relaxed and easy and they could just show up for a session. But now they've been voluntold into being a DM and they're not having a good time. Yeah, and, and that's actually a topic that Chad and I discussed a few episodes ago where, you know, some people view DMing as something you get stuck with. And I, one of the things that we were talking about, and Chad, I don't know, remember how much you know of the, how much you remember of the conversation, but, you know, one of the things is DMing. Yeah, it does take a lot more work. Um, you know, as you were mentioning, if you're a player, you just show up and that's all you do. Whereas with the game master, there's, anyone who's ever planned a campaign out there's a lot of work involved and a lot of extra you know extra hours you got to put in yeah and and you know it's one of those things where i enjoy being a dm but do i like to get behind uh or outside the uh dungeon screen every once in a while sure i like to play every once in a while but i have no problems with dming which is why you know you find a group and you're the go-to dm because you don't have a problem with it you know, sometimes I'll go two years without playing where I've just been running, and I don't have a problem with that. And But I guess the the, the want to get behind, outside of the screen on occasion, um, does I do get that feeling from every once in a while. I don't know. Do you ever want to be on the other side of the screen, Alexi? I mean, Never. Ever? I love this game. I love this game. If if somebody could run this game like I, you know, like I like to run it, then yeah, I would I would love to play. But every time that I play with a DM, I just about go crazy by all the stuff I can't do. <laughs> yep. So I'm I'm more comfortable, but I really think that what's needed is this mentorship, this idea of DMs teaching DMs because the company isn't doing it. The company doesn't care. The company just does not care. And we need organizations where dms can learn from other dms how to dm and they're starting to appear yeah and i think um because alexis that's something that you do because i know you've got your blog that you do which i mean we're gonna probably end the episode here because uh wow we've been going longer <laughs> longer than i thought but i guess when you get a few grognards uh you know old school gamers like us around to talk about D, you gotta expect the conversation to go on for a while right <laughs> yeah definitely but um so because I know uh, you have your blog, and I, you know I've happened to I managed to read a few posts here and there, and I because I know you were doing a couple where you were talking about city development, but um, so it sounds like that you're trying to be a resource that people can go to if they want to find out more about how to new ways to DM or ideas for a campaign. That's definitely my mandate. So I'm not just trying to give ideas for how to run. I'm trying to I'm trying to teach people how to. Well, you know, how to fish so I don't have to feed them a fish every day. <laughs> okay. That's a good point. So, um, Alexi, why don't you tell us a little bit about your blog and where people can find your blog and your podcast if they want to hear some more of your words of wisdom? Well, my blog is Tau of D&D, and my wiki is the Tau of D&D's wiki. Uh, both of those are on Blogger. Uh, in addition, I've recently started a different blog, which I post in twice a month called um, Tao's Masterclass, in which I take uh, examples from the online campaign I've been running since 2009 and discuss 
I could deconstruct the events of the campaign line by line. And here's what I was thinking when I said this. Here's what the players were thinking. So I've been running online an online blog, which is the Juvenus campaign, uh, plus the Senex campaign, which I've had to take down because of technical issues. Uh, I've been running those for since 2009. So there's literally hundreds and hundreds of pages of me physically running and players role playing on those blogs. In addition, I've recently started. Uh, I've recently started doing a podcast because I felt that the issues that were coming up was that no one was really talking to just ordinary DMs about their games to try to understand better what DMs are looking for or what kind of troubles that they're having. I feel that we spend too much time talking about the solutions for your games and not enough time talking about the problems. If you say, I'm having trouble with my players, somebody will say immediately, well, why don't you try this or try this or try this or try this? And I think better we should be asking the questions, well, what are the problems you're having with your players and how do we identify them so that we can see how other people are having those same problems so that we can come to a solution which is a little bit better than something I'm pulling from the hip off the cuff that I really don't know because I'm not dealing with your personal player. So I feel that we need to do more discussion about what makes the game hard for people rather than just trying to solve the game. Okay. And Chad, uh, now, of course, we know you uh, appear on my podcast every now and then, and I've got some podcasts of yours that I'm hosting. But if people want to contact you, how can they do it? Well, I got a question for Alexi first. What is the name of your podcast and where can we find it? Um, my the name of my podcast is the Authentic Role Playing Podcast, and you can find it on YouTube. Okay. Uh, I'm not putting it on any other service because those services charge me money for putting it on, and I don't really want to make it easier for Amazon to make money off me by exploiting my work. YouTube doesn't charge me anything, and I'm not really worried about people who can't listen to YouTube while they're at work. Everybody knows how to rip from YouTube. They should be able to be an MP3 from YouTube, and I don't care if they do. It's free content. Okay. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as getting a hold of me, um, like you said, Al, I'm on your network as of right now called the uh, – uh, Why Point am of I – Insanity Network. <laughs> Point of Insanity Network. Thank you. You can also email me at eclecticmediaproject at gmail.com. Uh, those are probably the two easiest ways to get a hold of me. Okay, well, um, I'd like to thank both of you for joining me today and uh, hope that if uh, any of you have had a chance to listen to the uh, 100 or so, you know, over almost 150 hours of podcast material I've put out there, hopefully you didn't find it a waste of time. So uh, I'd like to thank you all for listening and uh, whether you're just started listening or whether you've been listening since episode zero. I'd like to thank you all for joining us and have a good evening, morning, afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook 
and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio. Do you do a podcast about Dungeons and Dragons, role playing games, video games, or other topics of geek interest? Would you like to cross promote your podcast on geekery in general? Then drop us a line on our Facebook page at POI Game Studio or POI Network, or contact us through our website at POIGamestudio.com and we'll set something up.